Hey guys, Montel here, and thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Free Thinking with Montel. And I am really excited to have my guest on today, who's joining us all the way from Melbourne, Australia, and he'll be with us in a few minutes to talk about a subject very near and dear to my heart. And I know a lot of you who have been catching a lot of what we do here at Free Thinking you know that I do several episodes on MS, and I'm excited to have a discussion today about MS because a lot of you know that I was diagnosed with MS now officially. Hmm, 20, almost 30 years ago, uh, well, no, 21 years ago, where I probably should have been diagnosed about 40 years ago. Just to give you a little recap and make you understand, I um, was a young sailor uh, at the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, um, about to graduate, um, class of 1980. And like they do in the military, before you graduate from the academy, you go through a whole series of tests and physical exams, and part of the physical exam is also getting your um, immunizations or inoculations for future travel around the world. And, um, you know, I went through, I was one of the first people in line for our particular immunization, which was the theory and typhoid at the time, the one I was going through. And I'm told that we were the last group in the U.S. military to actually receive immunizations using a gun because what happened to the group of people that went through with me, the first hundred guys that went through the line uh, back in 1980, uh, we found out that the gun was actually set about five times as high as it should have been. And so the first hundred of us who went through got a five times higher dose of the immunization that was in the gun. And it immediately sent me to the hospital Within like an hour, I started suffering from some extremely crazy um, neurological symptoms and uh, flu-like symptoms. And I, within 20 minutes of the shot, literally almost went completely blind in my left eye. Um, and that's really what started my journey, unbeknownst to me and unbeknownst to the doctors that were around me at the time. But they sent me to everywhere I could be sent to. I went to Walter Reed. I went to Bethesda. I went to Johns Hopkins, which was right up the street in Baltimore. I went to the Wells Eye Clinic in Pennsylvania. They're trying to figure out what was going on with me. And no one at the time had any idea because, again, it appeared that I was having some sort of an adverse reaction to my immunization. But what had happened was, yes, in fact, I was having an adverse reaction to an overdose. They didn't know it was an overdose at the time. And... That overdose, though it did not cause my MS, it triggered an immune response in me that literally probably, you know, awoke a sleeping giant, which would have been MS that I probably would have been diagnosed with later on in life. But it sent me into what was then a bout or an episode that lasted for about six months. Um, and I will tell you, if we go back to 1980, and you look at all the information reported about and doctors had as references for MS. Back then, most of the physicians' desk references uh, described MS as the disease of Caucasian women of Northern European descent, which of course I didn't match that profile at all. And at the time when I graduated from the academy, I was weighing about 195 pounds, 190 pounds. I was... Uh, a powerlifter, a part of the powerlifting team. So I was literally one of these overblown up, over-exaggerated muscular kind of guys who I was walking around 190 pounds with a 29 inch waist. And, you know, I was putting any upwards of 500 pounds on my back to squat and upwards of, you know, benching well over 350. I was deadlifting well into the 550s. And, you know, so most of the doctors that I saw thought that I had some sort of neurological disorder based on probably some back damage that I had done or some nerve damage that I had done. And, you know, I was chasing doctors to try to figure out and get an explanation and really almost really never got one while on active duty in the military because the bout that I was in started to subside. Some of the vision came back in my left eye, though I was permanently damaged um, and has been permanent even to the day. Um, I have a larger scotoma in my left eye. I had a couple of really strange things called afferent pupillary defect. And I had optic neuri neuritis and a couple of other things. And I did, then if you remember back then, MRIs were rather new technology. So they were doing CAT scans and they really couldn't discern whether or not I had scarring in my brain or not. So I kind of went miss 
and undiagnosed. Um, you know, I graduated from the academy and I was one of the, you know, unfortunately one of the only people in the Naval Academy history to walk across the stage, receive my diploma, throw my hat in the air and not get commissioned on the same day uh, because I was put on a medical hold. But six months later, as I fought for my commission and I said, you know, because I, I wrote, fought all the way up through uh, the Senate to get a senator to back uh, my petition to be commissioned because I said, no, no matter what happened to me, it happened to me on military's watch and it's their fault. So therefore, you know, I've done everything I'm supposed to do to get a commission and be a part of this this military. And I fought for it and I got it and was then commissioned as a non, uh, what they, at they termed an NPQ, not physically qualified. So I ended up having to take a non-line commission I became a special duty intelligence officer because of some of my background and language training at the academy. I ended up going on to the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California and getting a degree in Russian and became a cryptologic direct support officer um, and uh, worked in that uh, and ended up literally fulfilling my military obligation and then some uh, doing more sea time than almost all of my fully qualified uh, classmates who had graduated. However, Throughout that entire period of time on active duty, every other month, every two or three months, I would literally have something really anomalous happen to me neurologically that sent me to sick bay, go see a doctor. And they say, I don't know what's wrong with you. And they run through a whole bunch of tests. I don't know what's wrong with you and send me back to duty. And, you know, I had a couple of doctors even look at me and say, dude, if you stop putting all that weight on your back, you might be, you know, get rid of all these issues. I think it's coming from, you know, all the heavy, heavy lifting that you're doing. And of course, I was hard-headed and didn't want to hear that. So I kept on lifting as hard as I could, ended up blowing myself up to about 220, 210 pounds. Um, and then I walked around and carrying that weight and lifting, but always having something strange going on. And of course, whenever my body heated up, I started losing vision in my eyes. Nobody could explain why. And then we started realizing that science and technology was catching up with the world of MS. And we were starting to find out that, yes, in fact, African-Americans can get this disease. And yes, in fact, men can get this disease. And yes, in fact, this disease has multiple categories. And you know, later on, I ended up going through in the year 2000, probably one of the most extreme episodes that I've had in my entire life, where I had another exacerbation that sent me back to the doctors and I was finally diagnosed in the year 2000 with MS and um, had literally the doctor who diagnosed me gave me the information in, in such a, a really, the guy had really, really, I wrote about him in a book. And so I don't feel bad about saying this, but it probably was some of the worst bedside manners that you could ever think of. The guy walked in my room and, you know, after doing, you know, a uh, in office uh, evaluation, came in and just literally, as a matter of fact, they said, well, I think you have a mask. Matter of fact, I'm sure you have a mask. Um, let me go out. I'm, I'm going to see if I can get you a confirmation MRI back East when you get back East. And I happened to be in Utah at the time. And I think you should see another doctor, but that's what I think is going on. So, you know, here, here's a brochure. And he gives me this little brochure, three pages of information on MS. And the first thing that crossed my mind was, geez, I'm one of Jerry's kids. And not realizing that MS and MD must, uh, muscular dystrophy weren't the same disease. Um, I literally uh, walked out of there just as angry as I could be. But this guy had the nerve to say this to me and then gave me no information about what I needed to do or how I was supposed to deal with this. And then about two months later, I uh, actually saw a real doctor or a good doctor back at Harvard University a Hospital, uh, the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, where my diagnosis was confirmed. Uh, through CAT scan and through uh, some more uh, in-office in uh, test and neurological exam. And it was confirmed. And uh, I did have, I not only have MS, but I have LS, a lateral sclerosis, also I have scarring in my spine. Um, and, you know, but back then, again, looking back in time, this is 1980, Information was not that great, and we didn't have the robust internet that we have today to be able to just go and Google and find out information at your fingertips. So I started going to the library and digging in as much as I could into this disease that I had that 
either was a deadly disease or not a deadly disease. It was a chronic disease or not a chronic disease. It affected black people. It didn't affect black people. I literally, you know, ran a gamut of trying to get as much information as I possibly could. And I read everything I could possibly read. And one of the things that hit me the hardest was the fact that, you know, it's a disease that is exacerbated by inflammation and inflammation was my nemesis. And I realized very quickly that my lifestyle at the time when I got diagnosed was an inflammatory lifestyle. I was running around, you know, trying to eat as much as I could of anything I could eat to keep my weight up because I'm really not a natural 190 or 200 pounder. I'm probably more of a natural, you know, what I am at today, about 179, 180 pounds. Um, but I was doing everything I could do to try to push my weight up. I was lifting weights that was really just absurd. Um, I had a lifestyle that didn't focus at all on eating right or diet or, or even taking the time to meditate and found out very quickly that everything and anything I could possibly do to reduce inflammation in my body would probably be of some benefit to me moving forward with this disease that was something that was not going to go away. And I started then digging in deeper and trying to figure out some of the things I could do from supplementation standpoint and from, you know, utilizing other herbs and, and things that could help me reduce my inflammation and inflammatory load in my body and help me maybe battle some of the symptoms that I was dealing with. And one of my biggest symptoms was neuropathic pain, uh, neurological pain in my feet, my side, I had trigeminal neuralgia, uh, pain in my face. And I had this constant nagging eye issue uh, that where every once in a blue moon would slip into a little nystagmus, you know, where your eyes start twitching um, and it would go away. And it was coming and going. So I realized that I was diagnosed appropriately with remitting relapsing. MS, but I knew that I was going to be dealing with this for the rest of my life. And so I had to get busy changing the way I lived to see if I could impact my illness the best way I could. I, over the course of six months, took off 20 pounds. I literally decided to switch the way I exercise and started adding more aerobic exercise in along my resistance training, but I brought the level of that resistance training way down, trying not to inflame my body, trying to pick up, you know, 650 pounds off the ground uh, and straining myself to the point of no return. I started exercising, I think more realistically, I started exercising for life, right? Exercising for body or exercising for strength in that regard. And it made the biggest difference I could say in my life. Of course, I started on a medication at the time very early on. And I also started using some other holistic medications that I think have had as big an impact on me as my Western medication. And I continue to do so today. And then I heard about this doctor out of Australia who literally was basically we seem to synergistically agree. And I started looking at his story and found out that there were so many things about he and I that we had in common that I needed to make sure I had him on free thinking. So maybe he could share some of his thoughts with all of you, not just those of you who suffer from us, but those of you who suffer from the pains of life. Because I think that the information that he has to provide can help us all no matter where we are in life. And there are more than 2.8 million people worldwide who have multiple sclerosis, according to the most extensive global study to date. I might add that, you know, when I was first diagnosed with MS, you know, the numbers in the United States were, you know, by, you know, National Institute of Health and from national organizations, even the National MS Society were claiming that back then in 1980, that we had somewhere around 300 to 400,000 people diagnosed with MS in the United States. And I did two polls myself within the first year, one done by Zogby, one done by, by Gallup, um, donated to us, uh, to a foundation I started. And both of them came back stating that back then in 19, sorry, in 2000, the United States had probably well over 1.25 million people with MS. And so 
I question this global study that they say that we only have 2.8 million people in the entire world that have this disease, where I think that we know for a fact that that's far greater. But that means that as a minimum, every five minutes, somewhere, 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 someone in the world is diagnosed with MS. Nearly 1 million of those people were more than that in the United States alone. My guest today has dedicated his life to the epidemiology of MS. He's an Australian doctor who is a professor and the founder of Neuroepidemiology Unit at Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. This unit expressly evaluates modifiable risk factors that predict the progression of MS. He served as a chief editor for Neuroepidemiology in the Journal of Frontiers in Neurology since 2017 and was founding editor and is currently the editor emeritus for Emergency Medicine Australasia. Between 1987 and 2018, he published more than 150 peer-reviewed papers, eight books, received more than 20 research grants. In 2020, he founded a nonprofit organization, Overcoming MS, to help empower people with MS to take control of their health through lifestyle choices. Dr. Zelenek, thank you so much for being here and a part of them, of joining me and being a part of Free Thinking with Montel here today, sir. Well, thanks very much for the introduction, Montel. It's a great pleasure to be here. Yes, sir. You know, I want to, you know, I, I love having guests on, especially doctors who are experts like yourself, who can give people, you know, some hope and understanding that, you know, they are not necessarily given a death sentence when diagnosed with MS. As a matter of fact, they're given a diagnosis that literally should be a wake-up call to them to get busy about living. Well, let's get started a little bit about telling about your, talking about your very personal connection with MS. Um, you yourself, well, uh, how old were you when your mother uh, was diagnosed with MS and how did that impact her and your lives? Well, gosh, I was only a little boy, really. I was uh, um, probably 10, 11, 12, around that sort of age when mum was diagnosed. I know when I was 12, we had to shift house because the stairs were too much for mum. Um, so she was diagnosed probably in the mid forties, um, and I was one of five kids. So we watched uh, we watched mum deteriorate over um, probably thirteen years, I reckon, from diagnosis to the time when she ultimately took her own life. She was bed bound. She was wheelchair bound. She couldn't uh, feed herself. So um, you know, it was probably one of the worst outcomes you can imagine from this disease. And of course. We knew nothing about it. I, I, you know, I started training in medicine while mum was still alive, obviously. And by the time I graduated, she was in a wheelchair. Uh, and I was, I think, a third year resident out of medical school when she took her own life. And she was so profoundly incapacitated. Uh, her life had become a sheer misery. And, you know, I, I totally understood why she would do that. But you know, it was. You can imagine Montel the the shock uh, when eighteen years later, I had some neurological symptoms, and I, by that stage, I was a specialist in emergency medicine. I was a professor at the University of Western Australia, and I was sitting in a neurologist's office, and he was telling me I had MS, and uh, all I could see was that that terrible, terrible decline ahead of me. Uh, and it looked like to me someone had just reached into my life and just taken my future away in an instant. And as you say, you know, the bedside manner of some of the people who tell us these things isn't necessarily the best. And he said to me, well, you know, I could be telling you you have cancer. It's not such bad news. Yeah, I mean, it was really crazy. The guy who told me said, you know, you have MS. And I want you to know that, you know, most of the research states that, you know, black men like yourself, African-Americans do the worst with this disease. But I I, I think you need to get this confirmed. I was like, dude, you need to walk up out of your pocket. But was was your mom's illness part of the reason why you decided to go into medicine yourself? I feel pretty certain it was. I mean, I was so young and so long ago now. I mean, we're a similar age. As you said, there are a lot of similarities between us, but, you know, that's a very long time ago. And I, all I can remember is that mum, uh, there was a bit of sort of subtle, subtle pressure in a sense. Um, she understood that I would probably be quite good at medicine. And for me, throughout that medical career, right from the beginning, there was a sense that I needed to do something 
about this disease that that for me there was this underlying sort of uh, uh, drive to to see people not do as badly as as my mother had done. Um, I I met a lot of people with MS, and I have done over the years, and that has sort of got stronger and stronger and stronger the older I've got, especially now knowing everything I do about MS and having had the sort of course with the illness that I've had, I realise how positive um, the whole thing can be if you approach it, um, you know, from a, a sensible scientific background um, rather than that that sort of terror and anxiety that we all feel when we're diagnosed. And that's one of the problems, I think, when it comes to the way Western medication or Western medicine, you know, impacts patients no matter what the illness. I mean, we, I, I'm not, again, I'm not knocking doctors, believe me. I have some of the greatest respect for some doctors. I've been working in uh, medicine myself uh, in various ways for the last 20 years, trying also to, you know, I when I got diagnosed, I think for the first two years that of my diagnosis, I walked around with the, oh, woe is me, you know, literally spiraled myself into the deepest depression that I could spiral myself into because there seemed to be no hope. And then the second I started educating myself and recognizing that that's not the case, it doesn't have to be this way. Let me get busy trying to live and trying to do as best I can. That seemed to inspire me and help me deal with a lot of the symptoms and a lot of the things that I was dealing with. We're, we were, like you said, we're, we were diagnosed almost at the same time. You were in 99, me in 2000. Well, really in 99 the first time. And the course of the illness is not something that can be crystal ball prognosed by anybody, right? No. And, and the great thing in a sense about it is that when, if you sit and think logically about it, it's such a variable illness that people can be at one end of the spectrum um, diagnosed and in a wheelchair in six months and have a very rapid um, deterioration. But at the other end, there are people who can live their whole lives free of any symptoms of this disease. And when you, you know, from my point of view as a scientist, you look at that and you think, well, there must be some reason for that. Why don't we have a look at what things might be different between those people? And that's the sort of whole basis of epidemiology, really, where you look at a population of people who've got a disease and you look at all the different factors about them and you try and group them and say, okay, the people who are doing well, what is it about that group that differentiates them from the people who are doing badly? And then you can start to think, well, okay, maybe I should be more like the people who are doing well. Maybe I should adopt some of those things. And with MS, one of the things we've known for a long time is that the great majority of what predicts whether you're going to get MS or not is environmental. So, you know, the genes account for something, and pretty clearly that's important to me. I, I got the genes from uh, my parents that predicted the fact that I was more at risk of getting MS, but I wouldn't have got it if the lifestyle and environmental factors that I had weren't all lined up like ducks in a row, uh, in a sense a bit similar to what you had, a highly inflammatory sort of lifestyle, staying out of the sun, uh, highly stressed, um, eating bad food, a lot of junk food because I was working really hard, a lot of food you could get really quickly. When you added it all up, all the ducks were in a row. And, uh, you know, if I hadn't had the genetic predisposition to get MS, I might well have got heart disease or some other chronic Western condition that all these factors also predict. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, I think we do have so much in common because like the same thing with me, um, you know, I think, you know, my mother, <clears throat> excuse me, my mother happens to be of dual race, uh, racial background. Her mother was 100% Scottish and, you know, Scottish descent. And, um, you know, we were families that didn't spend a lot of time in the sun. And, yeah. you know, when I joined the military, you know, I mean, I had my first couple of years, you know, deployed. And when my symptoms were seriously some of the worst that I had, you know, I was on submarines, for Christ's sake. I mean, you know, below the the, the water for... You know, top, I did well over 270 days under the water. Yeah. You know, um, and knowing what we know now, you would have been taking vitamin D the whole time because you weren't getting any sun. But it wasn't known then, was it? 
No, it wasn't. And absolutely. And back then I wouldn't have slept beside a nuclear reactor either. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like an idiot. So yeah, there were and, and of course, you know, though we think that you you get four square or three square meals a day in the military, you get three square meals worth of junk. So yeah. You know, uh, my diet wasn't that that good, and and I wasn't doing a lot of aerobics. I, of course, wasn't getting a lot of good time outside. So you're absolutely right. And um, you know, when I finally got diagnosed, and for me, it was kind of like a mixed blessing. Like I say, first it spiraled me out of control into depression, but at the same time, you know, I got diagnosed. You know, um, at the height of my you know, public career. And it gave me an opportunity to want to set an example for those other people who were out there who were suffering from an illness and had no hope. I was trying my best to figure out a way to give them some hope. So um, I think it was that extra pressure of that that helped me really try to seek out as much information as I could find and share with as many as I could share it with to see if I can help make their lives better. Um you know what? What I'd love to do is can you what? What actually? What were? Let's go back to when you got diagnosed. What were some of the symptoms that sent you to the doctor to begin with? Well, it was fairly sudden for me. Uh, I um, and I, I'm sure you're the same. Most people with MS they remember that, like it was yesterday, the day they got diagnosed. And um, I came back on a Tuesday from a long weekend away on a holiday, uh, and. It, I, I was in a really stressful job and I was coming back. I'd just really been appointed as a professor in emergency medicine and head of the emergency department at Sir Charles Gardner Hospital in Perth. And I was returning to work from a break. I felt pretty stressed about it. I was on a ward round uh, looking at pretty sick patients. And I started to notice this feeling of like a shoelace had slipped down into my shoe. And it just, I, every time I'd, Every five minutes, I'd let, lean down to try and pull the shoelace out, and there'd be nothing there. And of course, over hours and days, that gradually turned into a feeling of numbness. It spread up my leg, moved into my backside, down the other leg. Uh, really, by late in the week, I was pretty much, I had this sort of really altered sensation from the waist down. And uh, knowing what I knew, in a sense, I, I should have. Um, been able to see that and make the connection that this was MS. I mean, I'd seen what happened to my mother. Here I was, a specialist doctor. I'd seen lots of people get diagnosed with MS. And strangely enough, I mean, denial is a wonderful, it's a really powerful thing. And and it was the last thing that crossed my mind. I, I, it never occurred to me. Um, but I, I was lucky. I was working in a hospital. I had lots of friends who were specialists. And they were happy to see me over the weekend, arrange an MRI scan out of ours. Um, so I got my diagnosis a lot earlier than the average person. And I'm very grateful I did because then within weeks I could work out what I could do about this. You know, um, I wasn't in a position where I was sort of powerless as many people are and, and spent a lot of time gradually developing more symptoms, feeling worse and worse. And as you say, that typically ends up in a spiral down into depression and I was just fortunate that I was in the system and I got my diagnosis quickly, but that didn't stop me from um, that immediate sort of terror almost uh, when people start telling you and, and when you've seen what's happened to your own family members and you know what the future holds. And really at that time, there was no real way out of this. I, I I couldn't for the life of me see any way out of it. Uh, medicines well, hadn't really even come on the market yet. Yeah, I mean, just that I was to say, just then, I mean, 2000, 2001 is when they started the ABC yeah. uh, treatment protocols that were out and available. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I was very blessed and just like yourself. You know, I was fortunate because, you know, at the, the place that I was in life as a television talk show host and on the air all over the world and, you know, I was able to see doctors, some of the top doctors on yeah, the planet. Yeah. And, you know, God recommended to me, one of the doctors that said to me, I'll never forget, uh, said, you know, we know for a fact that those who start medication early seem to have a better prognosis. So I think, number one, that should be one thing you have to do. And number two, you know, you've got to really start. Uh, the, the one doctor looked at me and said, dude, I got to tell you, I don't see any value in you walking around here looking like, you know, a caveman. I mean, you know, 
I, I know you get a lot of joy out of lifting all this heavy weight, but doc, I was saying, I, I literally, you know, um, uh, uh, 19, uh, 1999, 2000, I was squatting, you know, out of a rack, like, you know, uh, I was squatting 530 pounds plus. I was deadlifting 550 pounds plus. I was bench pressing over 300 pounds. And I mean, and I remember those days because, you know, if you, if, you did, uh, yeah. if you didn't leave it on the chair or on the floor or on the, uh, yeah, yeah. on the ground, you know, you're supposedly less of a man. So, you know, I was putting so much stress on my body that way. Plus, I was also in a, like yourself, in a stressful job. You know, yeah. as a talk show host, though, somebody say it wasn't stressful. I talked about it and dealt with people who were dealing with some tragedies in your life. This is back before we had the internet and before we had reality TV, we were the reality TV. And, you know, I every day would do interviews with, with 15 different people who, you know, had been through some of the, the deepest traumas that you could ever think of. And, you know, I studied a lot and would literally take those stories home with me, getting ready for the next story that I had to talk about. And so, you know, I realized that I had to do some things to really get a grip and understand that it's about taking care of me. And that's been your philosophy, is it not? It has, yeah. For me, the um, the first thing really was I happened to get a sort of random email from my brother who said he, he had met someone with MS who was on a particular supplement um, and they hadn't had a relapse for 10 years. And I think when you're faced with such a an awful future, uh, your ears prick up a little bit when you hear something like that. And so, I mean, as you say, at that time, the internet was pretty rudimentary. And, I mean, we were using search engines like Alta Vista and all this sort of stuff that people, everyone takes Google for granted, but it was really hard to find stuff back then. But I, I managed to track down uh, this particular supplement, and it was a type of fat. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I wonder what PubMed, you know, what Medline's got to say, what the, the literature's got to say about fats in MS. And I stuck it in the search engine. And to my enormous surprise, the very first thing that came up was Swank's paper in The Lancet in 1990. And I read it and I just, I was just totally blown away. I could not believe that someone had actually published this in one of the world's biggest medical journals and no one had told me about it. I'd been seeing doctors about the MS for a few weeks. I was getting told about um, various tests they could do and so on. But this guy had actually run a study over 34 years with 150 patients with MS and they'd been on a, um, a low animal fat diet and by the end of it, the people who actually stuck to that diet after 34 years were still fit and well. And I looked at that in the Lancet and thought, this can't be true. Like, how, how could this information not be made public to people who are first diagnosed? So I, that started me on a, on a search and I just started chasing down all the leads I could. And of course, at that stage, I was editor of a medical journal. I was a professor in medicine. I I knew how to look at research. So I, I tracked down this research and some of it was rubbish, as I'm sure you know, and you've come across plenty of stuff, particularly on the internet these days. But some of it was actually really high quality stuff. And I started to put the pieces of the jigsaw together. And within, honestly, within a matter of months, I had um, a plan set out for myself for the rest of my life. Um, for how I was going to live, what I was going to change about my lifestyle, which was really a lifestyle I wouldn't recommend. And so many people are living it in our in our Western countries. Um, stressful, poor diet, little exercise, um, lack of sun. Uh, you know, it, it really, if you're not going to get MS, if you're not predisposed to that, you're going to get something. Uh, and for me, it, it really snapped me out of a, a sort of gradual decline into sort of chronic ill health. And really, I'm as fit and well now at 67 as I've been in my life. Um, I've been living this way for over 20 years now, and um, I wouldn't dream of living any, any other way, even if even if they said, look, the diagnosis was wrong. <laughs> I still right. wouldn't. Yep. 
Well, let's let's talk a little bit about what those changes were. Let's go a little bit more into detail. So you decided to change your diet was one thing, correct? Well, diet, um, I started to track down diet from Swank's paper. I looked at what Swank had done, and his was a very, very cleverly worked out hypothesis. I mean, this guy was a professor of neurology. He's one of actually the most uh, um, renowned neurologists in the world at the time. People discredited him a little bit because a lot of modern medicine discounts diet for whatever reason, I don't know. Um, when it's clearly fundamental to, to our bodies and to, to how we're made up and how our body functions. But so I started tracking down from the, in the various ways that I could as a research scientist, tracking down what the best diet would be that would, would set the physiology of my body to a more neutral immune setting so that I wasn't predisposed to inflame every time there was some kind of small insult to my body. Um, and Swank was on the right track, I thought, and his work was based on the fact that in countries where MS was really common, people ate a lot of animal fat. And even within countries, like his, his really seminal work was in Norway, where he looked at people who lived in coastal villages in the 1930s and 1940s, where they ate mostly fish, compared to the people in sort of mountain regions of Norway where they ate mostly meat and dairy, and they had a six times higher incidence of MS in the areas where they ate the meat and dairy. And he said, well, you know, people in Norway in the 1920s and 30s didn't move around much. We don't have the mass movement of people that we have these days. And so he said, look, maybe we should try people who have got MS on a diet that, where they don't eat the animal fat where we give them a specifically low animal fat diet. And that's what he trialled in this 34-year study. And, man, if you've got the perseverance as a scientist to study people over 34 years, I mean, look at the drug trials. Mostly they go two years if you're lucky. Sure, um, if you're lucky. And here we are, a 34-year study with those kind of crazy results. And, you know, I thought this is one of the great pieces of work in medicine. Um, but I tracked down the leads and I looked at all the other work around diet and chronic disease, MS, but any other chronic disease. And it became clear to me that animal fats are a real problem for chronic disease, particularly inflammatory disease. Um, so, you know, many of the common Western diseases we, we see now have inflammation at their heart, as exactly as you've said in, you, in your lead-up. Uh, um, you look at even heart disease has inflammation at its core, um, type 2 diabetes, uh, um, most of the autoimmune diseases. We can go through a really, really long list. Um, and eating a, a low animal fat diet actually resets the immune system away from that inflammatory setting. But it's not just the animal fat. And I started to realise that there was a lot of other bad things in our diet too, most particularly the way we've changed our diets over the last 100, 200 years in Western countries particularly fast food and processed food. Processed food, yes. Processed food is a real problem. And if people eat a plant-based whole food diet, then they're going to have much better health outcomes across the board. And this is really consistent throughout the medical literature. No matter where you look, where it's been studied, plant-based whole food diets are the, the best diet to prevent ill health, chronic ill health. The other thing that, that I've added in is seafood because seafood actually doesn't have those harmful fats. If it does, if it is fatty seafood, of which there is some, uh, then it's mostly the omega-3s, which are very helpful fats, and they also protect against inflammation. So I really put together a diet which was a plant-based whole food diet plus seafood and said, look, I recommend this for people with MS. I took it myself. Um, in fact, I, I put together a number of other lifestyle factors and then I put them all together into a book. I put the book out. I started running educational sessions for people with MS to really educate them about how they could change their lifestyles. And we started seeing results coming through from people who'd adopted this lifestyle who were starting to find that their MS was really no longer a problem for them. 
Yeah, if you if you could, you want to get out your book uh, right now, so the people who want to try to get a copy of it could get it on uh, Amazon or something. To, is it up there? Yeah, it's out there on Amazon. So it's called Overcoming Multiple Sclerosis, uh, and it's called the Evidence Based Seven Step Recovery Program as the subtitle. So I, I know it's a bit challenging for a lot of doctors in the space to see the word recovery on a book about MS, but I deliberately put that there because. We've now seen many, many people who've adopted this kind of lifestyle, this overcoming multiple sclerosis program lifestyle, who have essentially no further problems with MS uh, over many years, many decades for many of them. So for me, it's a couple of decades. I know many people who are in a similar situation. We're now starting to sort of collate results from people who've been following this program, who've been to these workshops, and we're seeing pretty strong evidence that uh, that changing those lifestyle factors makes a substantial difference to people's progression. What, what do you, why do you think that the medical community is so resistant against information like this? Uh, well, it's a really difficult question and I've been asked it a fair few times, but I, I, I have difficulty even pinning down a single reason. I think it's a complex a complex thing. I mean, whenever there's a, a paradigm change to anything, it's a pretty slow process for it to be implemented by the people who lead that particular field. Um, I think, you know, someone described, I forget the name of the person who did it, but described the kind of three stages. The first stage by the leaders in that field is to say, no, nah, that's crazy. Forget it. Totally crazy. Second stage is oh, look, there might be something in it. And the third stage is this works and we thought of it. <laughs> That's great. I, uh, I've, been, I've, been told, I've been told by some top doctors that, you know, one of the biggest problems in medicine is that if you come up with something transformative, it's normally met with the most vehement and adamant resistance at first. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, yes, it's something yeah, like transformational yeah. information is something that they just don't want to hear. Yeah, and I think that's part of it. I think part of it also is that, in the 21st century, we've come to a place in medicine where we see um, that medication is the only answer to a whole range of illness across our community. And in fact, in most Western countries, when you look at the types of illness we get, the majority of it is chronic, not acute anymore, not infectious, which it used to be. It's now chronic conditions, mostly precipitated by the way we live. So it almost, it makes little sense in a way for us to take 20 or 30 years of living badly to develop a condition and then try and treat it overnight with a particular drug rather than try and reverse some of the reasons why we developed that condition in the first place. I mean, on a fundamental intuitive sense, it makes much more sense to try and undo some of the damage through the ways we've lived rather than try and get the quick fix and keep eating burgers and fries and processed food and sugar and animal fat and so on. Now, you also uh, include uh, exercise in your regimen, correct? How many days a week yeah. do you exercise? I, I exercise every day, but, you know, that's not necessarily for everyone. Um, I think generally if you do three to five days a week for most people, uh, and, of course, it depends if you've, if you've got MS, how uh, – physically able you are to do various forms of exercise. But some of the, the best research shows that even people who've got quite advanced disease in MS can get quite a bit of benefit from even very mild exercise, you know, even lifting the the bar rather than with any, any weights on it. Um, just doing some regular uh, mild exercise can make a dramatic difference to people, even with quite significant disability. But for me, you know, I'm now 22 years on, largely unaffected. Uh, I, I swim five, six days a week, run the other two, um, you know, and I just love it. I mean, it's one of the great things to do, isn't it? To be outside in an outdoor pool in the sun, uh, I get out and I feel great. I just feel great. Absolutely. And that's the reason I do it. I don't know if you've heard anything. You know, I've been working for 10 years on a device uh, that's a medical device. It's called a PONS device, a portable neuromodulation device. We were doing studies in Australia uh, associated with stroke and MS. 
um, the device started off as a device that was its portable neuromodulation where we actually use the two cranial nerves in your tongue, send a signal into the brain. That signal goes in the brain for 20 minutes paired with some sort of physical exercise or some sort of mental acuity kind of things where we do some um, um, uh, uh, meditation and things. But those two things put together have we just got FDA approval here in the United States to help with balance and gait in people who have MS. It also got cleared in Canada for traumatic brain injury balance and gait. And I know that we've been working for CE Mark in Australia for stroke and MS and balance and gait. So have you heard about this? Look, I actually haven't, Montel, but I'll look it up. And it, it, sure. I mean, there are a whole, a whole range of modalities that we sure. have ignored in, in medicine, really. Uh, our reliance on uh, pharmaceutical agents has Correct. been a bit, uh, you know, we've gone too far in that direction where there are so many other modalities that we could be using, and particularly ways of stimulating nerve cell growth in the brain, uh, ways of, of encouraging neuroplasticity, of getting new neural pathways set up. Well, that's and exactly I, what this sounds thing. awfully like. That's what this thing does. That's exactly what it does. As a matter of fact, it's been proven through you know, multiple peer-reviewed studies uh, around the world to be one of the only electronic devices that actually does stimulate neuroplasticity in the brain, helping the brain to find pathways around damage. Um, If you look it up, uh, I'll get the information after we're done, but uh, it's called Helios Medical Technologies, and the device is called a PONS device, P-O-N-S device, Portable Neuromodulation System. Um, Here in the United States, and literally about two months ago, we just received... Uh, clearance here from the US FDA to commercialize the device and actually market it for uh, helping with balance and gait deficit in people with MS. Great. Yeah, I'll, I'll certainly look into that. And I get contacted by a lot of people with more advanced MS. And particularly for those people, I think this sounds like a really good um, it, option. It's it's a good option. It's something I've, I've been actually using myself for now 10 years. Um, I think that, that I give that as much credit as anything else that I've done yeah, yeah. Uh, to help keep me you know, on track the way I have been. Yeah. It's interesting, though, when we think uh, uh, technology is obviously really important when you can develop things that are so helpful and innovative. But we actually have a lot of control over some of these things ourselves. And there are many things right. we can do without needing to rely on anybody else, any technology, any pharmaceutical. So, I mean... You know, one of the obvious uh, things, and I know you're a person who does a lot of this, is mindfulness meditation, but also throwing into that um, imagery, guided imagery, uh, self-affirmation and so on. And there are, there are many ways we can stimulate our own neural pathways, you know, to, for instance, if we're going to do some exercise and we have some disability and limitation of the movement, to rehearse that mentally before we actually do it makes the the actual movement and it's been shown in clinical trials to be more effective so we can do more when we've rehearsed it mentally and so there's all these really interesting um interesting ways we can uh get some control over this personally without the need to rely on a whole lot of outside help or and it's a matter of really um ourselves getting more educated about what's available what we're able to do for ourselves. I think the internet's a treasure trove of this sort of stuff, but of course you've got to wade through so much that that is just opinion and not based in science, and and that's that's the issue. You need a bit of a guide to help you through that. Absolutely. Can you tell me a little bit about the holism study? Yeah, look, the holism, I I think, um, to be honest, Montel, the reason I at the end of my career in emergency medicine, I mean, I was like you in a very high stress uh, environment. I was, choppers were coming into our hospital, unloading people who were really seriously ill, ambulances lined up at the front. This was my day-to-day work. And at the end of my career, I decided to go into research into MS, uh, specifically around these factors that I found were so important. Um, So I set up this unit at the University of Melbourne in 2015, but The reason I really decided to do that was that um, in 2005, I think it was, I got a phone call from um, a guy who was 
on the organizing committee of a neurology conference in Sydney. And uh, he said, look, we've seen the work you've um, put out in your book. We've heard a lot about the program that you've, um, you're recommending. We wondered if you'd be a keynote speaker for us at our conference. And I said, look, I'd love to. That's fine. Uh, you know, I, uh, he said, look, just send across your CV. And, um, you know, it gave me the date and so on. So I booked my airfares and with it, uh, around a week or 10 days maybe later, just prior to the conference, I got a phone call from the the head uh, lead organiser. And he said, look, we've had a chance to look through your CV, uh, your resume, and we see that you've not published any papers on MS. So, look, I'm terribly sorry, but we're, we're going to withdraw the invitation, uh, which I have to say I was absolutely stunned. Uh, um, so I cancelled my affairs, I, uh, but I thought actually probably no one in this space who actually leads this treatment of MS, you know, internationally is going to listen to me unless I get out there and publish in their journals in the highest, at the highest level. And so I was very fortunate. I got some philanthropic funding to set this unit up at the university. And um, the very first thought I had was that, um, and actually, in fact, I'd really thought this through some years earlier, that I had such a large network now um, around the world of people with MS that I was in touch with. Um, people who'd come to my workshops, who'd spread the word. There was quite a lot of people now on the website I'd set up. We had a forum that had, um, I think at that stage, about 40,000 people on it. There was you know, a very large network of people with MS. And I thought, really, to, to even sort of channel the work that Swank had done, if we were looking at, um, he'd, he'd looked at where people had got MS, what was it that differentiated people who got MS from those who didn't? I thought, what about people who've, who've actually got the disease? What differentiates people who progress quickly from those who don't? Maybe it'd be worth looking at a big, big group of people and looking at those lifestyle factors and seeing if they're different between the people who progress quickly, people who are in the middle somewhere and people who don't progress. So what I did was um, set up a, a detailed questionnaire around the way people were living, what their diet was like, what they were eating day to day, how much exercise they were doing, whether they meditated, um, if they were taking vitamin D, whether they were getting any sun or not. It was actually a really, really long questionnaire and I was hopeful people might be interested enough to do it. It took probably 45 minutes to fill this thing out. Quite hard work, and particularly if you've got more advanced MS and you've got cognitive issues and, you know, it might have taken you an hour, hour and a half even, and I thought maybe I'll get a few hundred people. So I got this through the Ethics Committee. Uh, ethics approved it for a study. We put the links out on Facebook pages, on forums, on groups all around the world, you know, the MS Society Facebook page, we put it on Twitter, we put it on anything we could think of. And I thought if I get a few hundred people, I'll be pretty happy. Well, within a week, we had 3,000 people who'd, wow. uh, who'd enrolled, filled in the survey. Some of them, of course, got halfway through and said, can't do it too much, too hard. Uh, but we ended up with about 2,500 who completed the full survey. So that was 2012 when I first set it up. And then we decided... What we do is survey these people every two and a half years thereafter and look at how their disease is tracking. So we had information on their disability that they'd reported using all very standardised measures of, of how their disability was, quality of life, their, whether they had fatigue, whether they were depressed uh, and so on. And all the important outcomes for people with MS and all those lifestyle factors. And then we used quite advanced statistical techniques to try and work out which things about their lifestyle predicted whether their disability was get, was accruing faster, whether they were less uh, fatigued or more fatigued, whether they were more or less depressed, whether their quality of life was better or worse. And that we call that the holism study, the health outcomes and lifestyle in a sample of people with MS. That was the acronym I came up with from those uh, words. Uh, and we've now published, I think, 35 maybe 
close to 40 papers in the major neurology journals and other journals, you know, quality of life journals and so on, uh, in the literature. And absolutely no surprise to me or probably anyone else who's been in this space for any length of time, exactly what we predicted is what's happened in that group of people. So the, the things that predicted at baseline, those with more disability, were worse diet, eating more animal fat, doing less exercise, um, getting less sun, and so on. The things that predicted fatigue, uh, poorer quality of life were the same. Um, so that the people who had these worse lifestyle factors, were that was associated with worse health outcomes at baseline. But the real crux of this came with what happened at two and a half years, what happened at five years, what happened at seven and a half years. And we're now at the seven and a half year time point. We're analysing all that data, but we've published out of two and a half years and we're publishing more out of five years now. And if for the people who are um, deteriorating in terms of their physical ability, whose disability is getting worse, again, diet is a key factor. Uh, and, and the other lifestyle factors, as we start exploring them with these quite advanced statistical techniques, they're all holding up. And the great thing about this study is you're able to look at lifestyle in such a way that you can isolate diet. So we can look at just the effect of diet and its association with how people progress, whether they're depressed and so on, by keeping the other factors constant. So we control for whether they're exercising, whether they're in the sun, um, whether they're meditating and so on, so we can isolate out the effect of diet. Um, it's excellent. It, it's it's just, uh, you know, it, it's such an obvious thing to do in a sense, but no one had ever done it before. Um, and more particularly, no one had looked at all of those lifestyle factors. I mean, Swank had looked at diet. We've had people who've looked at vitamin D. We've had people who looked at exercise. But you can't, because people who eat well probably exercise as well uh, and probably are outdoors more and, and so on. So they weren't able to control for those factors because they didn't have all the factors. The holism studies got really all of them that we think affect the progression of MS. And uh, it actually, look, I say it's no surprise now, but when I first hit the enter button on the first lot of results and they came in and I saw that it confirmed what we'd thought, I was blown away. I thought, you know, we can, we can put this in the best journals now. Uh, and sure, any bit of science people can can look at and say, hang on, I think, you know, you could have done this better, you could have done that better and so on. But we're pretty happy that uh, um, we've, we've been able to get such a big group of people from all around the world contributing their data. We're, we've been able to keep a substantial number of them in this study over time. Uh, and, you know, the results, I think, speak for themselves, Montel. That's excellent. That is unbelievable. Dr. Mewoody, do you think there is a cure somewhere on the horizon when it comes to MS? Look, I hate to be the the bearer of bad news, and it's only a, 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 my opinion, of course. It's um, I don't think there'll be a cure for MS. I mean, it's so multifactorial. It's dependent on so many different things, as we've shown in all these studies. You've got to have the genetic predisposition. But, you know, only about 2% of the population's got that genetic predisposition. Um, you can you can live as badly as you like if you're the other 98 percent you'll never get MS um, but you'll get heart disease or type 2 diabetes or cancer or hypertension or one of the other chronic Western diseases um, you can if, if you look at um, uh, all the other contributing factors and and how it, they have to all really line up for you to get the disease then it's hard to see how you could isolate some, particular factor or substance or that would reverse all of that. Um, so the bad news, I think, on the one hand, is that there's unlikely to ever be a cure. We may well be able to get drugs that dramatically suppress it. But the more you suppress the immune system in that way, pharmaceutically, the more likely you are to get side effects from the things that the immune system is supposed to be doing when it's functioning really well. So there's always a trade-off. But the good news, I think, um, is that whether or not there's a cure ever, 
this is always available to people with MS. They've always got the choice to say, I'm going to choose how I approach this. I'm going to choose what my lifestyle is. I'm going to choose whether I exercise, meditate, what I eat. All of those things are available to me. And there's a very realistic chance that I'm actually get on, going to get on top of this and have a, a life that's really relatively unaffected by this disease if I really apply myself. Get busy living, right? Get, get busy, busy living. living. Yeah, I love that. Absolutely. Well, sir, I can't thank you enough, Dr. George Zellinger, for being a part of Free Thinking with Montel today. You've shared so much, and I know our viewers are going to be so happy and proud. If people wanted to reach out to you or get some information from you, where would they go online? Uh, the website's overcomingms.org, um, overcomingms.org. So uh, that will take you there. It's got all the information on the website, lots of other links. We've got a forum there people can join. Um, We've got circles all around the world that are springing up where people who are following this program are joining together and meeting up in person or meeting online, um, you know, to go out for OMS-friendly meals, overcoming MS-friendly meals, um, or just to support each other generally. And you can get all that on the website. Um, so that's that's the best place to start. That's absolutely incredible, sir. We're going to make sure we plug that, uh, really, really plug that here at the uh, you know, free thinking with Montel. I can't say thank you enough for joining us all the way from Australia and doing it live. And I, I can't thank you enough for being a part of this discussion. And you always have a home here whenever you want to come back. Lovely. It's been wonderful to meet you, Montel. Thanks very much for having me on the show. Really appreciate it. Absolutely, sir. And thank you for tuning in to this edition of Free Thinking with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Free Thinking with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear feedback, so please send us your comments.